Last week, we've been in a series in Genesis, if you are new or visiting with us this morning, and last week, uh, we were looking into the relationship that Abraham had with God through prayer. In Genesis 18, we saw that that really strengthened us, it helps us, when we feel weak in prayer, when we often feel weak in prayer, I am often weak. But to know that God is there, that like Abraham, we can draw near, we can come near to him without fear, is such an encouraging, equipping thing for our prayers. Now, we would be in Genesis 19 this morning, but there's two reasons we're not. The first one is the small reason. It's literally a small reason. It's child head height reason. If you know Genesis 19, and you can look there later, it's just not probably appropriate for us, the children in, to be going deep into Genesis 19. All the Bible is for them, but that's for more parents to talk about with their kids at home, what's going on in Genesis 19, and the serious nature of God's judgment against that sin. The second reason is this. Personally, pastorally, I just noticed that a lot of us do struggle in prayer. We struggle praying, perhaps knowing what to pray for, like we've already mentioned. We struggle perhaps praying in front of someone else, be that in a coffee shop, one-to-one. We struggle to pray in a group. We all have struggles and we all need help in prayer. And like we hear in every sermon here from the front of Reforming, um, that's always going to include the pastor. I'm not a perfect person and I've had struggle in prayer, particularly when there's things going on. When there's stressors, when there's things, I actually need people to pray for me. Um, in fact, we, the Bible tells us to pray for the preaching of the word. I think that we need to hear again, just for today, on the back of Genesis 18, and remember this, God listens, and you need him to. The fact that God listens is very important, and it's a means to an end. It's a means to an end. It's a means to him, that we have access to him, to talk to God, like we've heard in the New City Catechism over the past few weeks, to pour out our hearts to God. Reformed theologians call this, this means, this means to God, they call this the media gratia. Right? So media, media team, media gratia, by grace, the means of grace. You may have heard of it before. So Reformed theologians, we call this the means of grace. It's the means or channels of how we can actually connect with God in an ongoing, meaningful way, these means of grace. And it's important for us to see that the means of grace for us to know Christ and for us to grow in Christ, these means of grace are not human-designed. They're not even human-discovered. This is important. We are never innovators in the Christian faith. So we, the church, humans, we're not innovators in the Christian faith. We don't kind of, you know what would be a really great thing if we could do this thing, talking to God, and we'll call it prayer. You're going to love it. And we'll all be able to do it, and we think God will like it too. We didn't come up with prayer. We, We don't invent, design, nor discover the means of grace. They are what the Word says. They're gifts. Grace means gift. They're gifts of God. In the Christian life, we, uh, as Amy said, because of my mistakes this morning, which are manifold, but get to know me, the Christian life, we're saved by grace, lived by grace, serving by grace, constantly giving one another grace. And if we're not doing that, that's not the Christian life. 
And God has designed and determined and appointed by means of grace by which his Holy Spirit gives believers the ability to enjoy all these benefits of being united with him by grace. So what are these means of grace? It's pretty simple. On the Reforming Library up there, there's a book called Habits of Grace. It focuses on three. But the means of grace, in a nutshell, are this. Firstly, the obvious one is his word. You would not know God at all without his word. This is how he has revealed himself to us in his word, the Bible. That's the first means of grace. The second one is the sacraments, the signs of God's grace. What are the signs of God's grace that we celebrate? It's baptism and Lord's Supper. They are signs of God's grace, which means the sacraments, by the way, and the means of grace are not meant to be in and of themselves done and then you somehow get some grace. They must always be undertaken with the word. Because they're signs of the word. So the means of grace and the sacraments are always undertaken with the word of grace in God's word, the Bible. Which is why when we do the Lord's Supper, when we have communion in the Lord's Supper, which by the way is not today, we have no other elders except for me today, so we're elderless except for us. So it's harder for us to do Lord's Supper because we value the, the point that elders actually shepherd the flock of God and part of that is distributing the supper. So not today. But church lunch is on. Please stay. If you kind of rocked up thinking, I didn't know church lunch was on, I can't stay. And you, you can stay, that's the point, it's by grace. You've got no food, that's the point. We give it by grace. Grace is a gift. But the word of God always goes with the sacraments. So in the Lord's Supper we hear this. Jesus is, is, uh, is, is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 and Paul writes that we're to do this until he returns and as we do this we proclaim his death until he comes. Same in baptism. We speak the gospel as we baptise. Now that's important, friends, because as we talk about the means of grace and Reformed theologians, as you've heard, have called it the means, the, the, the uh, media gratia. Here's what happens is we take the means of grace in some quarters of, let's call it the wider Christian church, which is hard to sort of determine where that begins and ends, have taken the means of grace in a way to say that they actually operate without the word of God. So the Roman Catholic Church has a wrong view of these means by thinking that somehow if you just take that juice and just take that wafer, that somehow you get some grace. No, because the gospel must be preached with that. The gospel must be preached with baptism. It's the word of God as the means of grace that helps us know God and believe in his grace to us. So the means of grace don't operate on themselves as if it's some sort of magic trick. You don't just pick up a Bible and just read it and somehow you get a top-up of grace. The means of grace are a means to know God. That's the point of them. Which brings us to prayer. Um, other means of grace, you could see the church, the body of Christ, but always must have the word of God, of course, at center. That's why it's a church. A church community without Christ and the word at center is not a church community. It's not a Christian community. It's just a social group. But what about prayer? Where does prayer fit into this? How is prayer a means of grace? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 88 says this, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Prayer is a gift for people who call out on God's name in faith. Prayer is a means of grace that is shaped by the scriptures. So Acts 2.21, 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Prayer is a gift given to people that from the beginning of their salvation, from the moment when they turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, they're given this gift that they can call out immediately upon the Lord and be saved and safe with him. Prayer is a gift of being able to call on the one who saves us. And from the beginning of the Christian life right through to the new beginning, because it's not the end of the Christian life, the new creation is not the end, it's the new beginning. But from beginning to new beginning, we have this gift of prayer that we can call out on the one who saved us. It's not something we invented. It's not something we can manipulate. It's our way of communicating with God given by him. Which means that prayer goes with the scriptures. That's why we're turning to Matthew 6. You see, when we take the scriptures away from this means of grace of prayer, we won't know how to pray. And prayers go in all sorts of Awkward, if not awful, directions. People are praying for things they shouldn't be praying for because God's word doesn't tell us to pray that way for those things. We have things like prosperity doctrines take over rather than doctrines of grace shaping us. And so for us, we go to Matthew 6 because we pray, this gift of prayer is to be prayed in accordance with God's word, in accordance with God's will. Many of us don't know where to start praying, as I said. And there's many misunderstandings about prayer. But that's why we go to Matthew 6, and that's why we're in our cross-reference passage from Luke 11. In Luke 11, do you remember what the disciples said? You can just turn over there. It's pretty easy to find. So you've got Matthew, if you're new to the Bible, and use the contents page to be sure. Matthew, Mark, Luke. You can turn over to Luke. Just go there now. Keep a finger in Matthew. But we always read our cross-reference passages on purpose. But in Luke 11... We read this, Luke 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. You see this? The disciples are like you and I. They want to know how to pray. If we're honest, we find prayer hard. It can be a struggle. And knowing what to pray is often one of those blockages to pray, just to to actually ask. The English word pray means to ask. But notice this, the disciples are in the same situation. They want to know, how can we pray? How can we pray like we've seen John's disciples pray? Because they seem to get it. How can we pray like you, Jesus? Because you get it. And so here are these disciples, and the word disciple means learner. A church is a learning community of Christ. Here are these disciples who are learning how to pray like that. And Jesus gives them four things in Matthew 6. Go back to Matthew 6. Jesus gives them four things they need to believe. And the first one is this. There's no need to pray to be seen by others. Matthew 6, verses 5 to 6. See this in Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Often I'm talking with people, particularly men, and they love talking about, you know, Jesus gets angry and he turns tables. Jesus gets angry with people. We should get angry with people. And I'm like, I don't think you understand the Bible at that point. 
Because Jesus also teaches us, in your anger, do not sin. See, my anger is not like Jesus' anger. It's not perfect anger. My anger has sin crouching at my door, not far away. It's attached to it. It's like dragging on its heels, like a steel ball. But when Jesus does get angry, think of all the people Jesus rails against in the Gospels. You might know this. Of all the people Jesus really gets angry with, he doesn't get angry with prostitutes. He doesn't get angry with sinners, failures. He doesn't even get angry with tax collectors. Who does Jesus get angry with? Who does he have strong words for in the Gospels? It's the Pharisees. And he calls them, often, hypocrites. The word hypocrite, the word hypocrite means actor. It's religious people acting. Religious people just pretending that we're religious. And Jesus rails against that type of person who comes along and pretends to be religious, but in their heart harbors anger and bitterness and all sorts of things. But even when they pray, they pray not what's on their heart, not what's real, not in that reality. They pray just to be seen. It's all pretense. They're never honest with anyone. They're never self-reflective. I've actually got sin in my life and confessed my sin. It's always praying as a performance. Everything is wrong with everybody else. And here's my life. It's going okay. And we meet one of them in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. You may have been in Luke earlier. Come across to Luke 18. We meet one of these hypocrites, one of these people who are pretending, one of these actors. It's a famous parable. Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke 18, you can pick it up at verse 9, Jesus tells this parable to those who trust in themselves. A prayerless person is someone who trusts in themselves. But if they're called to pray in front of others, we'll, we'll, we'll at least say, they might not pray, they might say, yeah, I pray, I pray for things, I'll pray for you. But look at Luke 18. Jesus tells this parable, this story with a punchline, and he describes the Pharisee. He says, two men in verse 10, Luke 18, verse 10, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Imagine that. Imagine someone saying, everyone else has got problems, but I haven't. Imagine someone praying that. Wow, that's dangerous. I'm not like other men. And he has a list, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And then he even points, I'm not even like him, the tax collector in the room. I'm not even like him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. And look at those words. This Pharisee basically thanks God for how great he is. Oh God, I'm great. And then you see the tax collector, he's not a hypocrite, he's not an actor, he's not pretending. He just comes and honestly says what is honest and true, and he says it in very few words. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you can't pray that, you haven't understood the grace of God. If all you can do is complain about other people, grumble about other people, and it's never self-reflective on yourself that you're a sinner, if you can't do that, you have serious spiritual problems and you need today to receive the grace of God and see grace change everything in your heart.
Because there's no need to pray to be seen by others. Now, for another bunch of us, it mightn't be that's our problem. Pastorally, we recognise that. It mightn't be that we're aiming to be the best Pharisees we can, or the best hypocrites we can. But it might be that we just don't want to be praying that anyone would see anything. It might be we're just shy. It might be that praying in front of people is hard. Now, you might be surprised, and people never believe this, but you need to talk to my parents. I have been a very shy person in my life. I have been a very shy person. Something snapped at about when I was 16 years old. We're not sure what it is, but something happened, and it changed, but I've been a very shy person. But even then, praying in front of people can be can be difficult times. You think, well, that's, you know, I don't see any evidence of that. Well... We can talk about that later. But I want to I say that that might be your challenge. It might be you find praying in front of others really actually hard because you're a shy person. What Jesus is saying to you with all love and care is, don't worry about them. You're not praying for their benefit. You're, you're praying to me. Perhaps we pray because we do want others to see how godly we are, but you don't need to because your godliness is not from yourself, it's from Jesus. Perhaps people want to pray to show how clever they are, so we almost pray like we're preaching, we're using big words to impress people, but Jesus says you don't need to. It's not like Jesus is there, I'm not really listening, but all of a sudden if you said, and Lord, I thank you, for our understanding of superlapsarianism. And all of a sudden Jesus goes, oh, they used a big word, now I'm noticing. You don't need to do that. You don't need to use words to unlock Jesus' ears to you. He hears you, you have his ear. If a child can pray, so can you. Or perhaps we say to others, I'll pray for you, and we just forget about it. That's not malicious, we just do it because we forget stuff all the time. I forgot the Bible reading. <laughs> I forgot who was reading the Bible. But we can do that too, can't we, in life? Okay, look, I'll pray for you. Like, here's what I'm working in my own life. In that moment, why don't you just do it right then, particularly for a church? If it is a shock to someone that you would right then say, I'll pray for you in that moment, and they're a Christian, and they're like, how terrible. I think you need to think about how your spiritual life is going. Because you're at church. Like in a cafe, maybe you're in front of colleagues and you work at that cafe, maybe, in your workplace. But of all the places that is a safe space to say, could I just pray for you now for a minute? Wouldn't church be the safest place to pray? It is, friends. It is. Jesus is saying there's no need to pray to worry about are you seen by others. We don't need to pray to impress people because here's the second thing. We don't pray to impress God. Verse 7, Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Jesus is saying, don't be like the Gentiles, don't be like the people of the nations, of the world religions, who pray in certain ways to try and get God's attention. Now, there's a historical scholar, and he's really reliable in the historical stuff. His name is John Dixon. 
I really like his stuff on, on history. John Dixon's actually written some stuff on this because he, he goes and finds the archaeology. He finds the stuff that you and I can't afford the time to find. But you can go and look at his stuff. I can recommend a book and some articles. But he's found that of the ancient Near East, world religions of the time would have ways of praying that would heap up empty words that sometimes even Jews or Christians were tempted to copy. So this is a real thing, Jesus is saying. Believers are looking around at the nations going, how do they pray? Well, let's, let's get some ideas from over there. Let's get some ideas from, from kind of the, the corporate world of the neighbouring nations of how to do church, how to pray. So John Dixon has found that one of the things they found, one of the tablets they found is, is you might get a Christian prayer, but they've adopted some words from the nations around. So it might have words in their language. Our Father, we pray for this. And then it'll all of a sudden move to this. Dit, 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 dot, 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 dot. We pray that you forgive us our sins. Dot, 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 dit, 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 dot, dot, dot. And they're copying the nations around them, thinking if we just got all these things, all these magic words, somehow God will hear us. The point, of course, is Jesus is saying, no. That's not how God works. God is not a God of code. He doesn't write his Bible in code. He writes his Bible to be clear. He gives us prayer not to be in code, but to be clear. And by the way, you don't have to be an archaeological scholar to understand this, because this is in 1 Kings chapter 18, famously. It's also in Luke 18. In 1 Kings 18, what's happening there? You've got Elijah. You might know the story. There's Elijah, and there's the prophets of Baal. And what are they doing? Prophets of Baal have taken off God's people into believe all sorts of things. And Elijah comes to them, and he's fed up. And so you can flick across to 1 Kings 18 if you want. 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 18. In 1 Kings 18... Um, we read in verse 21, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, this is God's people, by the way, right? This is Israel, God's church of the Old Testament. He comes to them and he says, How long will you be limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Elijah says, come on, your choice now. Which one are you going to follow? And the people did not answer a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450. So it's 450 verses 1. Here's what we're going to do, he says. We're going to get two altars, and you may know the story. And we're going to see which God's real. But what do Baal's prophets do? You know the situation? They take a bull that was given them, they prepared it, they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and they limped around the altar they'd made. Why are they limping? Because as they cry aloud, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. As midday passed, we read in 1 Kings 18 verse 29, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And Elijah famously says, what's going on? And look, I'll paraphrase, but he says, maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he can't hear you. And yet, what are they doing? Giving empty words. What does the Pharisee do in Luke 18? Compare how many words the Pharisee uses with how many words the tax collector uses. The Pharisee heaps up and heaps up and heaps up empty words. And the tax collector says, forgive me, I'm a sinner. 
Friends, you don't need to be like the prophets of Baal. You do not need to wave your hands at God to get his attention. You don't need to use special words or magic words or some sort of trick. You just need to speak like a child. We've got three kids. You may have heard one of them this morning in the service. They often come like that. They often say, Daddy! Daddy! And they need my attention. What does a dad do when their child says, Daddy? They say, yes, I'm listening. Or at least we're supposed to. How much more our Father in heaven? In Luke 11, in that passage, we read this. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, gives him a serpent? Or if asked for an eggs and a scorpion? So if, if, if my child said, can I have a fish? They don't really ask for that a lot. Um, it's usually a device. Can I have a device or a book? Read this book. And then I go out and, and find in the garden a scorpion. No father does that. Gives them a snake, a serpent. No. How much more, Luke writes, if then you are evil, and I'm, I'm an evil sinner, how, we can give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Our Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And so what He's saying is, just ask Him. Ask Him. He's ready. You already have His attention. For thirdly, he is your father in heaven. In Matthew 6, verse 9 following, Jesus gives us what we call the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in this prayer, Jesus shows us how to pray. He shows what it means to trust him in prayer. It's an incredibly intimate way to talk to God, is to call him father. There are religions, well religions, that think that is crazy talk. Like the next biggest world religion, you see Islam, to call God Father? That's nuts. It's It's weird. But we can call God Father because we have been given access by the Son that through His Spirit we can actually approach God and know Him. That's extraordinary. Hebrews 10.19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can call him Father by the perfect Son. And what follows is requests that come before our Father in heaven. Requests that are all about God. In fact, if you notice, looking, you look in that Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, have a look at this. The first three in Matthew 6, the first three are all about God and his perfections and plans. And the last three are all requests for our church and community. And we are to pray in this way. This shapes our prayers, keeping the main thing the main thing. We're to pray for things like God's kingdom to grow, not mine. But God's kingdom, that we be all about Jesus because he's the king and not all about me and my personal preferences. We're to pray for daily bread. Now, praying for daily bread is throughout the scriptures. Have you noticed this? Ever since like looking at the manna in the wilderness, 
which only lasted a day, so they were told, don't collect more than you need for today, otherwise it'll go off. How much more in our society? I go and buy bread and I just like white bread. I grew up on white bread, you know, real bread. Um, my wife, Amy, she likes to get the brown bread with bits and stuff in it. And I think it looks like it came out of the header and we didn't kind of, I don't know, fully grind it or something. But apparently it's more healthy. It's more healthy if it's got weed seeds in it and, you know, chaff and stuff. I don't know. I don't get it. But I like white bread. And I love bread. But the white bread goes off faster. It's tragic. But as it goes off, it reminds me, even as I try and brush that green mold off the crust which Amy also doesn't like for some reason. It reminds me, daily bread, the point of this is to be daily dependent upon God. Not just, I prayed last week and store that up and now I don't need to talk to him for a while because he's got my life sorted out for the next quarter, but actually daily depend upon him in daily bread and all our needs. We live in the Western world that is so luxuriously filled with assurity for tomorrow. It's really fake assurity, isn't it, though? We think, tomorrow's sorted. This year I'll do this and that, and then I'll retire and do whatever. But there's no surety. It's only daily bread, but we get to ask for it. We get to depend on him for it. And fourth and last, we can pray, therefore, with our joy in Jesus. Because we live in a world of sorrow. Now, you might not have much sorrow in your life. But I've had some sorrow in my life. And it comes from unexpected places. Sadness, disappointment, discouragement. And in a world like that, you just wonder, goodness, couldn't, it, couldn't I have a happier time, perhaps next week, next season? But it reminds us that our joy is not ultimately found in this place, hang loose to this world. Our joy is found in Jesus. And that shapes our prayers too, verse 16. Matthew 6, verse 16. Jesus says this, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, and fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. What's this about? Here's what's about. This is really important. Fasting is always connected to prayer. So we don't fast... For any other reason, we don't fast to impress others. We don't fast to impress God. We only fast because we're doing something else. We're not feasting, we're praying in that moment. Westminster Confession, chapter 21, section 5. Solemn fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasion, which are in their several times and seasons, to be used in a holy and religious manner. We are not to use fasting as some sort of parading of how religious we are. What does that mean for us as a church? What does it mean for a reforming church? Uh, 
You may say, I've never seen anyone fast around here. I've been in churches where fasting's made such a big deal that you just know people are fasting. I was in such a church. I was in a church where the minister would tell us he's fasting and he, he looked awful. But sadly, I think he did it to look awful, to look to something to people. Jesus warns us, don't do anything to impress other people. But what about us as a church? How do we do this then? How do we fast? What's this got to do with joy in Jesus? Well, I'm going to tell you something carefully now. I'll tell you something very carefully. Because we are so tempted to fast to be seen by others or to impress God or treat it as a silver bullet, if I really fast, then I really get an answer to prayer. Because we're so tempted to abuse fasting, we want to teach on fasting well, and I'll use our church as an example. There have been times and seasons in the life of the elders of Reforming Church where the elders have fasted and prayed and you wouldn't even have noticed. And that's the point. Often the elders are in ministry that the wider church doesn't see. Um, I like to use agricultural analogies. You might have heard this. I was talking with a dear brother the other day and said, sometimes elders like boundary riders. In Australia, we have these boundary riders. They ride the boundary of sheep stations, cattle stations. They make sure that the dogs and the foxes can't get in and the sheep, the flock, stay safe. Elders are often boundary riders. That's a hard work. It's relationally grinding, difficult. And at times, the elders have fasted to pray and you wouldn't even know what's going on. That's the point. Because we don't do this to impress you. We don't do this so that you go, wow, that's amazing. They must be really godly and righteous. No, Jesus says you don't do this that people would notice. So we showered, we drank water, maybe juice looked the same. We didn't make a show of it. We don't want to be hypocrites. We did it so our Father hears our prayers in secret because he knows the secret motivation of our hearts. He knows what you're thinking right now, what I'm thinking. Even as I preach, there's always something going on in the back of our heads, isn't there? But see this. Jesus doesn't say, if you fast, does he? Have a look. Verse 16. He says, when you fast. Now that might mean for some people it's difficult fasting for their bodies. There's reasons where you should not stop eating, stop getting fluids, all that sort of stuff. But the point of this is not how long you fast for, what that looks like. The point of this is about prayer. The point is this, that for one moment, be that one meal or a couple of meals, be that a season of, and and we're to do this in a helpful way, read Habits of Grace by David Mathis on our Reforming Library. But whatever you do, if it's one meal, you at just at that time not eating so that what you're doing, friends, is praying. You're praying. And why are you praying? Again, first three points of the sermon. Not to impress others, not to impress God, but knowing you have a Father in heaven, we just don't eat, so we pray because our joy is ultimately not found in our taste buds or in our sensations or the things we can experience in this life, we're reminded as we pray our joy is ultimately found in Jesus. 
It's in Jesus. And that's why we pray in the first place. We don't pray because we've got a Bible study and at the end, after question seven, well, then we pray. It's not a formality. It's the only way we can function. The only way we can get through the days and daily dependence on God in prayer. It's in Jesus' name. Because our joy is in Jesus as we, by grace, live in daily dependence on him. Here's where we finish, friends. When we finish our time to go as a church, we'll have a church lunch, we'll go out the doors, we'll go to a week of sent worship. I want you to notice this about our society. You already have, I'm sure. We live in such a self-reliant society. We live in a society that says, I can do it and it depends upon me. Of course, until there is the next threat. There is the next disease outbreak. There is the next war. There's the next thing that causes us to look a little bit older in the mirror. Perhaps we're a little bit less comfortable in life. But we live in such a self-reliant society that never works out for us. And what Jesus is saying to us is we get to rely upon him because God listens and you need him too. Through various trials, through failings and frustrations, through sickness and sin, the purpose of prayer is not that we get things or get answers, but that we get God, we get Christ who is our joy. Jesus is our joy. And those who had the Father's ear can pray just like he did. Because there's a day when we see him praying in absolute utter despair and sorrow and grief, sweat drops of blood and tears. Jesus models prayer throughout his ministry, throughout his life, but where he really models it for us is at the cross. Because Jesus, in all the places he's praying, in public, in private, where does he also pray? In the moment of our salvation. He's praying for us. On the garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he's betrayed, he prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's praying the same prayer he taught us to pray. And then later on the cross, he calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. He's praying all the way. We have God's ear. We have daily dependence upon him as a gift. Why? Because the one who doesn't just give us daily bread, what does he give us? Forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus gives his life on the cross. And knowing that will change everything about the way you pray. God listens. And you need him too. And my prayer now is that you will really believe that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that we can be part of the kingdom of Christ by being under the loving lordship of King Jesus. Thank you that our King teaches us to pray. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive others and lead us away from the temptation of self-reliance. Deliver us from this evil that we would be your people who live and breathe and have our being by praying with daily dependence upon you. For, Lord, we need you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.
Amen.